0: Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. break. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world today is Friday, February 19th. We have a fantastic show for all of you listeners today as I am joined by the man behind the best resource in all of tennis media, the stats guru of the tennis world, Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman, joining me on the show to recap Daniil Medvedev's straight set victory over Stefano Tsitsipas and to preview our two upcoming Australian Open singles finals. Of course, given that we have Jeff, we dive into the analytics of it all. We talk serve percentages, we talk what are the key numbers these players have to hit in order to find a pathway to victory in the final. And then we talk about the broader relationship between analytics and tennis, where the sport lags behind other sports, why it's so difficult to analyze tennis using numbers, given the sporadic and improvisational nature of the sport. Of course, I also wanted to ask Jeff how the numbers have been impacted by this pandemic, how a six month layoff may affect their ELO rating on tennis abstract, which is their equivalent of of a ranking system of the players based not on, you know, their results of what they're playing, what round of an event it is, but actually who they're playing, the opponents they're actually beating. It's a fantastic conversation. I know all of you listeners will enjoy. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out is because of the support all of you continue to show us here at Cracked Rackets because of the support we get from our Patreon family and, of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. Just go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, MidwestSports.com, the promo code is CR15, excuse me, with that in mind, let's get to my conversation with Tennis Abstracts, Jeff Sackman. Joining us on the podcast today is a guest I have been trying to track down probably since the start of this podcast, and that's because, in my opinion, you cannot have a good piece of tennis content unless you are using the resource provided by our guest today. He is the data guru in the tennis world. His website, Tennis Abstract, truly the foundational piece of so many great research pieces throughout the professional tennis media landscape. You may also know today's guest as the host of the Expected Points Podcast. I know our guest as a treasure chest of information. It's Jeff Sackman. Jeff, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Well, I was doing well until you set impossible standards for my (laughs) parents on the show. (laughs) That's what I try and do. I try and kill the intro, just a really hard 45 seconds so that our guests are like, oh man, I got to really bring my A game today.
1: Yeah, I'm giving up. So I mean... (laughs) Everybody, set the set the bar low, ignore everything Alex just said. It'll be okay.
0: Yeah, no, from here, it's straight B-minus, I promise. Um, but, no, obviously, Jeff, uh, just at the start, thank you so much for all you guys at Tennis Abstract are doing. Uh, I know you are particularly excited to have started your ex- uh, Expected Points podcast for any of our listeners who aren't already listening to it. Can you give them a little bit of a rundown of what they can expect?
1: yeah it's it's based on a podcast podcast um that is a is a financial podcast run by the barons publication that just is it's three numbers every day so it's under four minutes a day we highlight three numbers i say we it's really just me um <laughs> and it's it, sometimes it's like really quantitative stuff often it's just trivia uh, but the idea is just a, a quick four minute hit of hopefully a smart take on on tennis news that like, I I think there's a lot of short podcasts out there in different parts of the podcasting universe but I don't know of any in tennis or really that many in sports and it feels like that's a, a big gap that hopefully we'll
0: fill a little bit of Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And it's so hard, right? Because there are so many matches going on throughout a day in the professional tennis world. You've got your ATP, your WTA matches, you've got challengers, ITF matches. Obviously, during a Grand Slam, it's a little bit more easy to focus. What is the most difficult part in choosing your three stats? Because I'm sure there are plenty to choose from. Yeah, there are definitely plenty to choose from. It's easier when there
1: is so much going on um, because even just following my Twitter timeline, I'll see someone say something interesting, and either I'll use that or I'll get an idea for something else to chase down, or you know, I'll look at the match stats for my favorite players or whatever. What it's a little trickier when the matches are whittled down to nothing because today, like, I mean, the three I did today were one on the uh, Osaka final tomorrow, one on Sitspas Medvedev, and then one on the women's doubles final and didn't really have a lot of other choices. I guess I could've talked about the Phillips Island final, but (laughs) I mean, you gotta figure 300 days out of the the tennis year, there's, you're spoiled for choice. And then, you know, aside from the 30 day off season, there's these few days at the end of every Grand Slam where all eyes are on just one or two matches a day. And I mean, today's match was interesting, but it was kind of a dud as far as real, like real thrilling stuff or Mm -hmm. statistical anomalies. So, I mean it, it worked out okay there's still plenty of stuff to look at but it doesn't give you as much choice as looking at you know round two of a of a slam where tons of seeds are doing interesting stuff and there's 64 singles matches and other doubles matches and challengers going on in europe and you know just i mean it, it, i i do three numbers a day but i could probably do 300 numbers <laughs> in the first week of a slam
0: yeah, no, I mean, my problem is I'm tempted always, like, I could do 10 minutes on Kasakina Buzkova if I really wanted to flex my muscles, right? It's like there are so many different matches, so many different elements to a match that you can analyze. And I do want to get into, you know, the origins, the impetus for something like Tennis Abstract because it really is. And I know there aren't degrees of unique. So it's a un- I'll just say it's a unique source within uh, tennis media to turn to. And again, we'll get back to that in a little bit, but I speaking of the Daniil Medvedev-Stefano Tsitsipas match, we're recording this Friday morning, 8 a.m. here on the East Coast. Uh, that match finished up here this morning. Medvedev, a straight set win over Tsitsipas to advance to his second Grand Slam final, and I know you wrote a piece for TennisAbstract.com that is, truthfully, the reason I was five minutes late is because I wanted to read your piece on Daniil Medvedev's win streak and you know where his, I believe it's now a 20 match win streak sits uh, compared to some of the other win streaks we have seen of and That's kind of where I want to start today's conversation because, as you mentioned, I don't think we learned anything particularly new last night in the medvedev Tsitsipas battle. If you were able to watch the match, I think it's fairly safe to say Daniil Medvedev does have the one thing you want most when you're playing stefano Tsitsipas: is that big first serve to get into the Tsitsipas backhand and start the rally from there. Uh, we, we can start with the medvedev Tsitsipas match. Not sure if you have the chance, to, you know, if you're someone who got up early watched the match, if you've snuck in any highlights yet thus far, but your thoughts on Medvedev's level in this Australian Open throughout this win streak? And, you know, again, kind of the premise of your piece with him going to the final now.
1: Well, the interesting thing about looking up the streak is, I think the information was out there. The new Federer has this long top 10 win streak, and Djokovic has done it too. What blew me away was not just that, that Djokovic had done uh, i think his best win streak is 17 top 10 wins in a row but he's also got a 14 match win streak against the top 10 another 14 match streak against the top 10 a 13 another 13 a 12 and an 11 so medvedev lo- looks pretty impressive right now and if you multiply that by seven and add some then you're up to what, <laughs> what Djokovic does against the top 10 you know n- nothing big um uh, but for Medvedev, and also, I mean, you can say the same thing about Djokovic. What's been really interesting this last couple of weeks is how much they're they're succeeding on the back of their serves. Um, and you're right to point out that Medvedev just dominated on first serve. I think it was 50 out of 57 points he won on his first serve today. And I was looking at his, his first serve stats against Tsitsipas in their previous matches, and the matches that Medvedev has won – um, it's been the same story. Like when I saw that, I think it was at an 88% that works out to that. That sounds just eye-poppingly high. Like he can't possibly be doing that very often. Can he? Well, actually he can. Um, in the 20 match win streak, he was 96.4% of first serve points. That's I'm sure that just means he lost one against Schwartzman in Paris. Uh, he won 92% in the match against Anderson in Paris. Like he this is not uncommon for him to be winning nine out of 10 or close to nine out of 10 for surf points. And he's done it against Tsitsipas before. And I think that's the, that's the secret. Like it's, he hits so hard and he can control the rally that he forces you to play on your weak side. And for Tsitsipas, I mean, we've, we've seen this for decades with guys who have strong forehands and, have one-handed backhands, not naming any names, but Tsitsipas falls in that category and his one-handed backhand is good. His slice backhand is okay, but if he's forced to play in that corner, then yeah, you've got the advantage. And in a match like this, that's probably all you need.
0: Yeah. I mean, you look forward to Neil Medvedev during this win streak. And again, I believe now he is up to 20 matches uh, with his victory last night. Uh, now, the numbers from last night haven't quite been added yet into this but during the first 19 matches he won an average of 79.6 percent of his first serve points he had a hold percentage of 90.6 which for those of you who aren't familiar with tennis abstract hey what are you doing like start using tennis abstract trust me you'll become a better tennis fan as a part of it but you know that's uh, that 90.6 hold percentage you want to compare it to John Isner John Isner's hold percentage uh, during his career is is 91.8%. Roger Federer's hold percentage during his career, and again, these are in tour-level matches, I should say, is 88.8%. So Daniil Medvedev during this win streak is holding at the level of Roger Federer and John Isner. And then he's presenting everything else he does on the tennis court as well, right? That doesn't even factor in his percentages as a returner. And you look during the stretch, he's won 42.2% of his return point. He's got a break percentage over 30%. Those numbers are all, you know, absolutely insane. And I'm sure it helps that we're playing on hard courts. But I feel like the eye test shows it, the numbers show it. More than anything else, this is Daniil Medvedev just solidifying himself at the top of the game, I would say. You know, you look through this, this run he's had at the Australian Open, he dropped two sets. They were both in that match against krajanovic in that third round, but these last two matches in particular, the way he's zoned in on the first serve and the way he's so locked in and uh, exploiting his opponent's weaknesses and for both Rublev and Tsitsipas that was just really disciplined targeting of their backhand side. I I feel like there's not a statistic yet that can measure how how clearly Medvedev targeted that backhand wing for both of them but I feel like at least 70% of rally balls were heading in that direction and if he can play that focused of a match from start to finish I mean he may just beat Djokovic on Saturday night.
1: Yeah, the tricky thing is that Djokovic doesn't have that weakness, right? Yeah. That it, it, Medvedev is he, – he, he's so smart, and he's he, he's got such a range of skills that if he does play someone with a weakness, then, yeah, he can exploit it better than – that, probably better than anybody. But that's – I mean, that's, that's why Djokovic has all these win streaks, why he's been number one for so long, that he doesn't have that. And, I mean, maybe Medvedev is still good enough. Medvedev has three wins against him. Uh, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't bet against him, but – it it won't be as easy. I mean, I, I don't think we'll see any patterns where we can say, yeah, all Medvedev has to do is target the... I mean, you can't finish that sentence against Djokovic. You can... <laughs> You can target the mystery ab injury?
0: I don't know. That's all I can think of. (laughs) No, I, I agree with you. It's like When you think about Novak Djokovic these past 52 weeks, you think, oh, he really hasn't been that great. These past year of results for him aren't the things you're going to turn back to when you look at the history of Novak Djokovic and say, well, he was really good in 2020 and 2021, and then you go and look at the record and it's like... Well, actually, he's thirty-six and five in his last fifty-two weeks, and as you mentioned, even when he's not good, he's winning seven straight matches against top-ten opponents, and just you know racking up these wins, uh, even if it's even if they're ugly. And I mean, yeah, you talk about it when you look at the career head-to-head between uh, Medvedev and Djokovic. Medvedev has had some success against him, and I guess. You know, when when you're starting to look at any, and I, I don't know if you've done your full breakdown yet for uh, the Djokovic Medvedev head-to-head, but if you look, you know, at the stats, are there any things you think Djok- uh excuse me, Medvedev needs to do in particular? Any thresholds he needs to hit to have a chance in the final? No,
1: um, I mean you're right. I haven't I haven't done a full breakdown, yeah. um, but I mean I think it's just going to be be a brutal match and. Uh, it's interesting that both of them seem to be adopting some of the same tactics in this tournament. And partly it's because the the surface seems to be a little faster. I say seems, everyone seems to agree on that. And players and commentators keep saying that I I saw some number that it's officially 20% faster, whatever that means. Uh, I haven't confirmed that. I mean, I'm not sure my eyes completely agree with that, but if we accept that, then yeah, Medvedev's hitting a lot of aces, Djokovic is hitting, more aces than I think, as as a on a rate basis, more than any other slam in the past. He's gone over 20 aces in two different matches now, and came close even in the short match against Karatsev in the semifinals. So they're both thinking more in terms of shortening points, and that's not what you think of when you think of the Djokovic Medvedev matchup. I mean, if you if if you ask the you know, nerdy tennis fan on the street what a Djokovic Medvedev point looks like, they think about this you know, brutal 20 stroke rally. But I don't think either of them wants that, and probably especially Djokovic, Djokovic doesn't want that. And maybe that's the key, that because Djokovic isn't 100%, uh, maybe Medvedev is going to try to force him into that battle and just try to get the serves back, get, in, get, get into the points, which is, of course, easier said than done against Novak Djokovic, but stop Djokovic from shortening the points a little bit as he's done to escape a couple close calls in the tournament so far.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you look for Daniil Medvedev again during the win streak. His splits—he has made, I believe, it's sixty-four percent of his first serves won. About eighty percent of those points, winning about fifty-three percent of his second serve points. In his matchup matchups against Djokovic, he's made sixty percent or fifty-nine percent of his first serves. Excuse me, won only sixty-nine percent of those first serve points. Forty-eight percent of his second serve points. So you do see some low-hanging fruit for him, right? If he can make a slightly higher percentage of his first serves, continue to have that success of... It's not even plus one tennis with Medvedev. It's that with that big first serve, it then opens up everything else he wants to do. It's the death by a thousand paper cuts after that serve, the short angles, and he'll just keep you moving. He'll make the match physical, but... You're absolutely correct. When you look for Novak Djokovic, it's just like, okay, well, how do you beat Novak Djokovic? And it's always crazy to say, but the way you beat him probably is you have to hit through him. You have to take your chances. And the reason he's Novak freaking Djokovic is because there have been three people in tennis history who are good enough to actually hit through him, and that's Federer, Del Potro, and Wawrinka. And, you know, Nadal and Murray kind of live in this other stratosphere where they also could kind of Physically match up with Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev probably has to do the latter, right? He probably has to wear Djokovic down over the course of a five-set match, and, you know, the good news for him is he does have that gear physically, and then he does have the big first serve to win him some free points. The flip side, of course, for Novak Djokovic, I mean, it feels like It feels like Daniil Medvedev does not have the weapons to hurt him in a ground-stroke rally, and so much of this match may be on the racket of Djokovic. He'll be the one dictating, and in a Grand Slam final, it feels like you don't say that too frequently about Novak. I don't know. I I, I wouldn't want to ask you—I mean, I guess I'll ask you for a pick. In terms of when you examine this match, the way they've both played heading into this, which way do you lean for this men's final?
1: I I can't pick against Djokovic. I I (laughs) think— I think that virtually everyone, this might just be one of those human psychological biases, but I I, I think tennis people especially tend to lean too hard on, on recency biases. And if you do that, then the news is Medvedev is great. Medvedev's on a winning streak. Medvedev looked great in the semifinal. Djokovic hasn't looked unbeatable in the tournament. Djokovic is nursing an injury. So these recent inputs tell us Medvedev is the winner. But really what they tell us is medvedev is a little better than we thought coming in and djokovic is a little worse than we thought coming in and i don't think that adds up to medvedev being the favorite and it makes it closer it might turn it from you know 60 40 into 56 44 or something but i mean i i think djokovic's edge is too great that unless the injury is worse than we thought or medvedev just plays the match of his life then i i still lean novak but i mean it it, it could be close i won't be surprised if it goes the other way and um yeah i mean i'm i'm just hoping that he's healthy enough to play a good match and, and medvedev brings out some kind of tactical plan that really pushes him
0: yeah i if it was djokovic on one day rest i would think to myself hmm like, I, I, this, there is a, a, even more of a recipe for Daniil Medvedev. But the fact that Djokovic gets that extra day of rest, I agree with you. I think the injury becomes less of a concern in that case. I think he got the straight set win he was looking for in the semifinals. And, you know, Karatsev was great all the way through the Australian Open. But if you're asking Novak Djokovic, you can sign up for any opponent in the draw for the semifinals. He'd be like, give me Karatsev, please. And he probably would be pretty satisfied with the way the tournament ended up breaking open for him, and so I agree with you. I mean, the big number, Medvedev's going to have to be in that 75% to 80 range, right? I feel like that's an elite service performance. He's going to need to have an elite service performance, as you always do if you're going to knock off Djokovic, but I-, I agree with you. There's a reason What Djokovic has won eight Australian Open titles thus far. I, I don't see uh, this being the year that he slows down. And I just feel like from a from a chasing history perspective, he left a Grand Slam on the table clearly last season at that 2020 U.S. Open. That was his to have. He got defaulted somewhere in the back of his mind. Novak Djokovic very much remembers that and thinks to myself, man, I, I got to up my count because Rafa's still going. Would I Maybe Federer's still going. Who knows? I agree. Eileen Djokovic... I look forward, I should say, uh, to the podcast hearing the big numbers you have going into the final, because certainly I think we all agree, though, there is a pathway for Daniil Medvedev. Let's flip gears now and talk about the women's final, though, because this is a match we have seen uh, very, very recently. And I suppose we saw the Medvedev Djokovic match as recently as the World Tour finals last year. But, you know, we saw Jennifer Brady and Naomi Osaka play uh, just last season in the U.S. Open semifinals. Now, on that, in, uh, on that occasion Naomi Osaka able to take a 763663 6, 6, 3 victory to advance to the final obviously this is a grand slam final there are completely different pressures that come with playing in that grand slam final but just let's start here your initial reaction to this Brady Osaka women's final the things you will be watching most closely Jeff
1: well, one thing that struck me, I've watched a couple of Osaka matches throughout this tournament, and I, I always seem to watch her right after switching over from some m- match with with considerably less powerful players. And <laughs> maybe it's also because I've been watching a lot of 70s and 80s women's tennis lately too. But whenever <laughs> I switch over to Osaka, it's like, oh my God, it's possible to hit the ball that hard. It's possible to hit a tee serve that looks like that. It's just, I mean, I, I kind of know what, tennis fans felt like when they saw Serena or Venus for the first time, just come out and have a different level of power. Uh, I mean, I'm old enough that I should have been paying attention then, but I think I was, I wasn't paying attention to tennis too much then. And Osaka is like that for me. Like, it's not, it's probably not as big of a difference, but it's just, I mean, it, it is something that feels qualitatively different, not just an extra couple mile an hour in the serve. Like I, I don't think there there's any woman including Serena who can go down the tee and hit big serves to win cheap points like she can? Uh, it's just it, it, it's, it's just at a different level, and I, I don't know how much stock to put in the fact that she seems to turn up her level so much in the big matches at slams. I mean, it seems like there is something mental going on there. She thinks she thinks they are important, and we've seen her. Uh, not show up for some matches that aren't as important so you know another kind of general rule I follow against what a lot of commentators tend to talk about is you know I, I don't put a lot of stock in in people who bring their A games at certain times or they're going to play better in big matches but if I were ever to break that rule it's for her because she seems to have that track record she seems to be thinking that way based on what she says in public so whatever whatever my ELO rating says for Osaka, whatever aggregate career numbers we have for Osaka, we probably have to turn the dials up a little bit when we're making a, a prediction for how she's gonna play in a Grand Slam final. And because she is so powerful, because we can expect her to perform at that level in the final, it's gonna be really, really hard for Jen Brady. And I noticed this after after Brady's match um, against Mukova, which, Ended up being a pretty close match. Mukovets not a big server. Um, I mean, she's pretty effective, but she's certainly not a big server like a Serena or an Osaka. And in that match, Brady won 28% of return points, which yeah. is not good. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's okay if 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 you're playing a pretty strong server on the men's tour, but in the women's game, unless you're playing Osaka or Serena or maybe Arena Sabalenka, it does not get the job done. Uh, I, don't, I, I haven't looked up what the what the success rate is but I'll bet that players who who win 28% of their return points in women's matches I'll bet they lose like 90% of the time. So, she's just barely beat Mukova. Um she actually only won 49% of total points in that match. Uh but the 28% return point was the one that really stuck out to me and the other matches she's had in the last year where she won so few return points were the Ostrava semifinal against Arena Sabalenka when she also won 28% of his return points. That was 6-4, 6-4 Sabalenka. And the other one was the US Open semifinal against Osaka. She won 27% of return points there and she managed to win a set. So she timed one of those return points pretty well, or I guess at least four of those return points pretty well. But it, it, was, it it's not enough when you earn two break points in an entire match and I mean, you might be lucky to earn two break points in an entire match, winning return points at that rate, then it's really tough to win, especially since Osaka isn't that one dimensional. So, I mean, in terms of going straight to a pick, then I just don't see Brady's route to winning against such a good server unless she showed us shows us some return skills that I've never seen from her before.
0: No, it's it's all very good points you make, and I mean, for Naomi Osaka, and I, I think I tweeted this out uh, earlier in the weekend, but you know, during this run she has had, she is averaging, uh, she's winning on average seventy eight point four percent of her first serve points. Now you compare that to the career percentage of Serena Williams, Serena Williams, who. I think by the metrics, I think by the eye test, I think we would all agree, if you follow tennis closely, has the best serve in women's tennis history. Uh, For her career, she's won 74.4% of her first serve points. So Naomi Osaka, again, it's not nearly as broad of a sample size, but it passes the eye test. The numbers reflect the fact... Her serve may be the best in women's tennis history, and you don't say that lightly, and it sets up everything else she wants to do with, you know, the plus one forehand, the plus one backhand, and obviously given you know, the nature of her forehand backswing where it's a little bit big and it's a little bit hitchy, but it doesn't matter because she always has so much time to set up on that ball because of the return she's getting back. And, you know, that Serena match, I think Osaka made less than 50% of her first serves, but she still won over 80% of those first serve points. And you look at the Tennis Abstract leaderboard for the last 52 weeks for Naomi Osaka, she, you know, is the best server by so many metrics. You want to do percent of service points won. Well, she's number one at 66.5%. Number two is Jennifer Brady at 64.3, but it's a full percentage gap there. You look at the first serve win percentage, she's at 78.1. The next closest player is Serena Williams, who's at 73.6. So again, four and a half percentage point gap there. In terms of second serve points won, she's number five uh, in the leaderboard amongst top 50 players over the past 52 weeks. Just, you know, in terms of hold percentage, She's the number one player over Jennifer Brady. She's at 87%. Jen Brady at 83%. So, you know, I think for... For Naomi Osaka, this, yeah, I I just agree with you. She, it's just a lock. You can, you can draw that in. She is going to be holding serve. And what was so impressive about that semifinal is the moment she was broken serve in that second set, she comes up with three incredible backhand winners, right? Two cross court, one down the line. And Serena gives her double fault and the breaks right back in her pocket. She holds that love. She wins the match. And, you know, that's it. It's clear right now she's got the best serve in the women's game. Now, I guess if you're looking at a pathway for Jennifer Brady and you're thinking to yourself, okay, what are the things she can do to at least give Naomi Osaka some difficulties? That's probably where you start is she's got a hold serve as well. And, Yeah, I mean, the match Brady played against Mukova was just horrifyingly choppy. It just felt like Jennifer Brady was going for broke on every forehand, and the forehand either made it or, you know, or she missed it, and I think it was like 20 winners against 38 unforced errors in the match for Brady, and that very, you know, those numbers very much reflect the eye test of the match, but... You know, the big thing I keep coming back to is you look at their U.S. Open battle on that occasion, Naomi Osaka won 84.3% of her first serve points. Now, Jen Brady was at 77.4%. Both of those numbers feel very replicable, right? I feel like there is a world where we see this just being a match where both Brady and Osaka are holding serve. And I think that's where the pathway to victory starts for Jen Brady. She does have the for- sort of first serve that can certainly give Naomi Osaka difficulties in this match.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, if, if you're looking for a path for Brady to win, it's, yeah, just up your serve game a little bit more so that Osaka never breaks through. Because that the numbers in that U.S. Open semifinal are tilted in Osaka's favor I mean Brady isn't isn't going to want to have a replay of that but even in that match she won a set she kept it pretty close uh, and it doesn't take much to to flip a result like that I mean that's one of the reasons that I I've probably spent a disproportionate amount of my time studying players like Karlovich and Isner and, and Ronich and so on not because they're super interesting but just because the statistical stuff they generate is interesting and it, the mix of skill and luck is is distorted a little bit where I mean, if we watch most matches especially on the women's tour luck is involved but i mean it, the margins aren't quite so small but if you've got isner karlovich the marlin the, the margins are so small that luck is a huge factor and you're going to get to tie breaks and it's going to depend on a couple points in a tie break maybe one player is is stronger for some tactical reason in a tie break and you're looking at these very tiny things and i don't think we're quite at that level with osaka brady especially since osaka is like you say she's a cut above brady in all these serve stats but if brady does come out and have the serving day of her life or a top 10 percent serving day of her life then Mm -hmm. We could get like a 7-6, 6-7, I guess it wouldn't be 7-6. We'd go to a champions tie break or something. Um, But that's, that's the route. It's like, I don't think there's anything Brady can do short of cross her fingers for Osaka to have an off day to expect to break serve more than once or twice in the match. But I mean, you don't have to, there, there is a route here on a fast surface with two big servers to, to win a match with just a couple clutch points. And yeah it could, it could go either way so i mean it's 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 not a lock in the sense that osaka against some of her early round opponents was but it would require a lot of luck i think to to go to the underdog
0: yeah no, I, I,
1: that's completely fair
0: and yeah it's just jennifer brady does have the power to disrupt the things naomi osaka wants to do she can land the big first serve land the plus one forehand that ball is so heavy and you know if she can get that forehand into osaka's body into that forehand wing maybe you can start to produce errors and yeah she's just gonna have to play you know a power tennis you know a, a thin margin sort of match certainly and I think it's so interesting for Jennifer Brady, you look through her two pathways to the US Open semifinals and now the Australian Open final. She hasn't faced a single top 10 seed in either of her two Grand Slam runs. Now, I didn't ask you beforehand if that's ever happened before, but that is a little bit surprising to me that Jen Brady has not faced a top-ten player outside of the two Naomi Osaka battles she's going to have now uh, in the semifinals of the U.S. Open and the finals here in Australia. But... It does feel like Jennifer Brady, I mean, you see the numbers she's put up on a hard court. This isn't a fluky run, right? Seventy over, Winning over 73% of your first serve points, that's in the elite of the elite category as a server. I think it's safe to say, and I'm curious if you would agree, that Jennifer Brady has joined those ranks. That's what's allowed her to have all this success over the past 6 to 12 months.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a huge step, and, yeah. and because... Um, because there are so few players like that in the women's game like if you can go out day in day out and and hold serve five out of six games like she does then then yeah you've got a big edge on on the flip side like th- th- some of the people who have similar numbers uh aren't up there so i mean l- looking at one of those leaderboards you mentioned yes osaka's number one Brady's number two in hold percentage but after Osaka Brady and Serena Williams, you have Johanna Conta and Sai <laughs> Sai Jung. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure I, uh, Brady would want Sai Sai Jung's um, career in the past or the future. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's both sides of the ball always. Like, it, I mean, it's easier to talk about this on the men's side since there's more examples of really one dimensional players, but I mean, you can't just look at someone's surf stat. So that's the, the big test with Brady. And, it's, it's bizarre like, as you point out that both Brady and Osaka have avoided top players so much That so was one of the um, one of the things I highlighted on today's episode of expected points was this will be Osaka's 25th straight match against an opponent outside the top 10 uh, and it, it seems like a little bit of a cheap point because you know Osaka played Serena Williams and Serena <laughs> Williams isn't. It seems like she should be like a lifetime member of the top ten, at least an honorable <laughs> one. And yeah. she played Mukarutsa and she, she played Alcarinka twice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's not to say that her her titles are cheap or that she doesn't deserve anything she's gotten. That's not the point at all. But it it does mean that when you look at these, whether you're looking at the win totals or the titles or especially at the at At the serve stats, like they are being piled up against, I don't want to say second tier opponents, but, you know, sort of 1B level opponents. Like if, if there had been a tour finals last fall and Osaka had gone there and played three to five matches against top 10 players, then her numbers would have come down. I don't know how much. It probably still would have been pretty good, but if Jennifer Brady had snuck into the tour finals as an alternate, 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 and played three to five matches against top ten players in the world, her numbers definitely would have come down. So, I'm I'm not sure by how much, um, but it is something we have to keep in mind, and it, it, it'll be interesting when whenever we get to the point where the tours really restart and and all the top players are regularly showing up for the top events. There's so many matchups we're just not getting right now. One of the uh, wild numbers I came across with, with that Osaka status, it'll be 25 straight for Osaka, but Simona Halep is on a streak that's longer than that. Um, aside from, she, she had a match against Karolina Pliskova in the Rome final that Pliskova retired from, but if you take that out, Simona Halep is on a run of 27 straight matches all the way back through 2020 where she hasn't played a top 10 opponent. So this is... Osaka Hallett matches aren't happening um in Plishkova Hallett matches which seem to used to happen all the time like they're rarely happening Os- uh, so many players I would love to see how they how they square off against Naomi Osaka and we just haven't gotten that in this time when Osaka seems to be so great so hopefully 2021 will allow us to answer some of these questions and I mean Osaka Brady should be interesting tomorrow but it will not do that for us. <laughs> it, it won't yeah. shed any light on those questions.
0: No, that's a fascinating. And that's a kind of a perfect segue into what I want to end today's conversation about. And you referred to your ELO ratings for those who are unaware of tennis abstract. The ELO rating is, I would say, it's the tennis abstract ranking system of where these players stand right now. Their pecking order based on their results. You know, who I believe the way you put it in uh, the blurb for the ELO rating is it's who they're playing, not when they're playing and what event they're playing. And, you know, for some tennis fans, they're... There's some red meat in those ELO ratings. For instance, for me, you look at the WTA wins leader in the 2020 season, Elisa Mertens, who by the WTA rankings, in my opinion, vastly underrated. You have her at number five right now in the ELO ratings. Some other ones, some fans, I think, will enjoy the fact that, you know, someone like Marta Kostyuk, who is up to number 50 in your ELO ratings, Ann Lee up to number 47 in the ELO ratings, all ranking Podoroska up to 27 all already. already. Kudermatova, 23. These are players who have had the sort of results that they should be. Top 50 players, of course. You're looking for red meat on the other side. The fact that CeCe Bellis is at number 26. Some people may see that and think, hmm, That's a little bit high or, you know, my personal favorite of all of the rankings that the fact that Elo already reflects Yannick Sinner, you know, the Sin man as a top 10 guy. Or you just I think you have bought the affection of every ginger tennis fan across, you know, tennis nation. So congratulations to you, Jeff. But, uh, you know, you start to look at the Elo ratings and, you know, you start to look at all of the numbers and, you know, how skewed they are right now by the six month pandemic uh, layoff. Curious, how difficult is it right now to, you know, find accuracy in the ELO ratings given just how sporadic all the play has been?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question and one that I hope, I mean, post-pandemic we'll be able to get a better grip on. And I think everyone looks at any new rating system or any unfamiliar rating system and and. A, they're looking at the things that they agree with, to think like, like oh, yeah, course. Yannick Sinner is better than his rating. But then they're also, especially if, if you're the sort of person who posts on on tennis forums, you're looking for something that proves that I'm an idiot. So <laughs> you're thinking, oh, yeah, Elisa M- Mertens is number five. There's no way Mertens is the, the fifth best player in the world. And I mean, I, I'm i sympathetic to that. I, if, if I were not looking at any numbers and I were generating a top 10 list, I probably wouldn't put Elisa Mertens on it. But... The idea is we're we're taking all that uh, all that out of it. So so hopefully by you know, by weighing who everybody's playing, we come up with some some pretty dispassionate rankings. And specific to the pandemic, what I expected to see when the tour restarted was that the predictions that these ratings generate, uh, which are I mean the forecasts you can always see for current events on on the tennisabstract.com page. I expected that they would not be as good because different players are you know contracting coronavirus or they're training really hard or they're training with someone new or they're not training at all like there's just so much more variety in the level of preparation and some players thrive on on rest some players thrive on a lot of match play there's just so much more variety and as it turned out based on what we've seen so far, those predictions are almost exactly as effective as they've always been. Like there's no, there's no surprises there. It isn't like there's tons of upsets on tour. It isn't like the top players are dominating more than usual. It's just, it's just business as usual. So you can certainly complain about a lot of specific ratings and, that's all fair. I do it too. I always look at the ratings and thing and wonder why someone's so high. Like, I mean, I, I love the fact that Sinner is, is top 10 in my ratings, but when he first got there, it it seemed a little premature, but (laughs) what I can tell you is, I mean, there's, there's no human recency bias in this. Like this is, this is an algorithm. It's an algorithm that's battle tested. It's, it's, it's equally fair to everybody. And the pandemic isn't turning into mush. Like it's, pretty much as effective as it's always been which means that you know in, in tennis most matchups are 60 40 or 65 35 or something and that's still going to be the case so still one out of three matches is an upset or something like that um but it's it's not any different just because of all that rest time and the quarantine and 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 all this stuff it's it, like i said before about the the, the pick, it's like when we're telling these stories and reacting to all this news, like our, our so many people's first instinct is just naturally to say it's different now because, mm-hmm. but I mean, the more, the, the more you do any kind of analytical work, the more you realize that's the wrong way to start. I mean, the way to start is almost always, it's probably going to be how it's always been except maybe, and then, you know, fill in the blank with, with the story of your choice. It's just, stuff doesn't change that much and you can you can get a long way where you're going most of the time with these analytical questions by looking at history, whether that's forty years of tennis or or one year of tennis. But I mean, it, it takes a lot to break those trends. The the trends have gotten there for a reason and they're usually pretty reliable.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I think when you see Sebastian Quarter at number twenty-four, all as a tennis fan, you think is that spicy? I'd be like, inject that in my veins right away, please, because more of those. Sort of, again, and that I think it is reflective of. The current form now, 25, might be a stretch, but it's the fact that Sebastian Corda has played more than 90% of players right now out there on tour, and he's having success not just at Delray Beach, not just at the French Open, but at the challenger level as well, and I think Elo does a really good job of capturing that now, and again, mathematically to say, to even offer this idea to you, you blow me out of the water, I'm talking checkers, you're playing chess. But there's got to be a Jeremy Shardy corollary, Jeff, where it's like there's a rule now where Jeremy Shardy cannot get up to number 32 in the ELO ratings because we all agree that probably isn't the case. Well,
1: it, 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 it's, <laughs> it's tricky because... No, I, I, yeah, I, yeah I, I mean, I understand yeah. that, but you, yeah. you, you make a... You make a good point that there's certain things we think we know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that like, I think if if you if you asked 50 serious tennis fans where Sebastian Corda should be rated, then no one's going to say 24. I mean, maybe maybe Corda's dad, if he's in the survey, would say 24. <laughs> I I know Corda's manager, and he might say 24. But I mean, it's it, no one's going to say 24 just because it's so out of the realm of possibility that we don't mm-hmm. think of somebody winning a few challengers and being the 24th best player in the world. But Think of it another way. Like, it, it, there are not that many dominant players in men's tennis right now. And, and I mean, the flip side is Jeremy Shardy. Maybe Shardy really doesn't belong in 32. But, I mean, the, here are the people around Korda right now. We've got Borna Chorich, Kachanov, um, Shapovalov, David Gofan, Marin Shilich, Kristen Garin. Like, okay, if you give me Kachanov versus Korda, I'm going to pick Kachanov. But Korda versus Gofan? Yeah. Are you confidently
0: picking Gofan
1: over Sebastian Corda right now?
0: No, that's the neighborhood he hangs out in. I completely agree. I think this is, I th- again, that's why I like to turn to ELO rating because I think it is far more effective. It's, it's, an, it's a more fluid product. It tells you who they're playing, who they're beating. Like, is the Korda-Hatchdov match a toss-up? No, but do you expect Corda to take a set if that's a 3 out of 5 set match? I would say yes. Like, I, I completely agree with you. I think it is far more effective and look at a guy like Aslan Karatsev right who currently by ELO rating is the number 57 player in the rankings and If you, you know, and I think he was more reflective, uh, or I think ELO ratings was more reflective of his 2020 success than the ATP rankings were at all. I don't think Karts have took that big of a jump yet in ELO with the Australian Open results plugged in. So I think that would be a perfect rating of a guy who was killing it at the challenger level and then just kind of had the opportunity break open for him this Australian Open.
1: Yeah, and, and it's a good point with the way the rating system is right now too. I've written a few things over the years about ELO being a leading indicator for the ATP rankings. And if you just think about the way they work, the, ELO is designed to estimate how a player is playing right now. I mean, it, 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 all past results are baked in, but the idea is this is how they're playing right now. If you think about how the ATP official rankings work or the WTA rankings are the same way, then it's an average of performance over the last 12, 12 months. And right now it's more than that because of the pandemic adjustments. So even in, under normal circumstances, what the official rankings are really designed to do is tell you on average, how good was this player six months ago? In, and even if it does a perfect job of that, which it doesn't, but even if it does a perfect <laughs> job of that, it's still six months behind. Whereas ELO is designed to be zero months behind or maybe one week behind or something so if if both rating systems are working perfectly elo is six months ahead and the people who are are higher rated in elo should see their official rankings follow pretty shortly and generally that's what happened i mean medvedev and rublev were top 10 players in elo long before they were on the official ranking system and because of the pandemic adjustments that six-month gap has widened a lot. So, I mean, Mertens is one example, but some of the younger guys we're talking about now, like Corda and so on, it's it's really hard for them to climb the ranking. Like Jen Brady, if she wins the Australian Open title, she will be number 12 in the world. With a US Open semifinal and an Australian Open title, she would be number 12 in the world. And I don't know what her ELO rating would be, but I'm willing to bet it would be better than 12. And that's just, it, it, it. it's ridiculous that the the rating the rankings the official rankings are so stuck because they're basically a two year ranking right now because they're one they're one year behind and that means that what whenever we're looking at rankings or seedings then that's where we're gonna start seeing upsets because the seedings are based on the rankings which are based on this average of of more than a year ago and as that gap widens more and more the the rankings just become irrelevant i mean i i, I don't know exactly when we're going to snap back to normal with the the ranking system but i'm eagerly counting down the days
0: yeah no i mean case in point by uh official rankings arena sabalenka r- right now number nine garbin muguruza number si- uh 15 by elo rating sabalenka's number three muguruza's number six and i just like I cannot emphasize how much more accurate the ELO rating is there, because I think when you look at those two players, you think to yourself, those are the two, you know, two of the six consequential players who, going into any event, you have to look where they're at, at the draw, uh, in the draw, because certainly, uh, given how well they've played, those are two players who can win. So, yeah, I uh, again, this is why I turned to Tennis Abstract, and i got to stop buttering you up, but sincerely, it is the most valuable resource for any of us in tennis media, and I promised you only, you know, 30 to 40 40 minutes. We've gone a little bit over that. I'm going to try and sneak in just a couple more questions here, if that's all right with you, Jeff. Um, yeah. And they really just, again, relate now more broadly to statistics and tennis because. There are a lot of statistical data points, I would say, in tennis, right? You can measure every forehand hit, every backhand hit, the length of rallies, and, you know, I think we're getting smarter and probably better at measuring, you know, rally patterns and figuring out, okay, if I play two forehands cross and then a forehand line, I win X percentage of points, but you still compare tennis uh, to perhaps some of the other sports and where we're at. And just a fun anecdote for you. I was a little bit giddy last night. I was talking with my two brothers. I was like, oh, I'm bringing on Jeff Sackman from Tennis Abstract. And they were like, what's Tennis Abstract? And I was like, think basketball reference, but just for tennis. And they were like, oh, that's awesome. And I was like, it is awesome. But I guess, you know, again, a little butter there before I get to the question. Um, Where, In terms of the relationship between tennis and analytics, do you think tennis lags behind other sports and perhaps where are the areas that tennis could continue to further embrace analytical studies of the game?
1: Well, the, the biggest gap is just the fact that it's not a team sport. I mean, it's absolutely right that, that tennis is, is is far behind definitely baseball, probably basketball, probably football, definitely soccer, so on and so on. And, and part of that's just structural, that one of the reasons baseball was was so far ahead of the game I mean apart from the fact that there are a few visionaries involved but structurally like there's a huge advantage to be gained by being a, a smart analytical baseball person like as long as you've got an owner who will hire you and people who will you know listen to your suggestions then you can convert your analytical knowledge into winning baseball games and you don't even have to do anything very complicated or at least you didn't 20 years ago when this all really got rolling. You just had to know who to pick in the draft or who to sign in free agency or how much money to offer them and so on. And there's no equivalent to any of that in tennis. A, a player can't, you know, I mean, I guess you, you're sort of drafting doubles partner, but I mean, if, if you're team Federer, then, I mean, you pretty much stuck drafting Roger Federer to play your matches for you. There's no way around that. So all you can do is play smarter and that's where the data was lacking for such a long time. So, I mean, we've made a ton of progress with uh, with the fact that Hawkeye data exists. Uh, there's so much more video now, so people are tagging matches, not so much publicly, but my match charting project has 8,500 matches in the database now. So it's not quite at the level of Hawkeye, but you can track things like I mean, percentage of different ground strokes hit, and what direction players are serving at at certain moments, and so on, and so forth. A lot of that stuff is out there, and whether it's the Match Starting Project, their own tagging, or or things provided by other services, a lot of coaches are using stuff like that, and that's that's a huge step because I think that ten, even ten years ago, that wasn't really the case. You used to see coaches with their little notebooks and. They'd be they'd be scouting their opponents, saying, "Hmm, Rafael Nadal went wide with his ad court serve on break point. Interesting." And then you know, in their next match, they would know, "Ah, watch out for that wide serve on break point." And that kind of stuff is is obvious now. And it's not just obvious for Nadal; it's obvious for pretty much everybody because it's been it's been farmed out to to a few a few companies that are doing that kind of work, and a lot of players are signed up for that kind of stuff. So that's happening. But I think there there are things that are are preventing it from going further one of them is just that for one thing that the the real meaty stuff out there is the hawkeye data having actual camera track tracking data and that's just not publicly available and it's not even really privately available either just to some extent it is but um if you want to do aggregate analysis over every match a player plays or every every match on a Hawkeye court that a player plays. I don't think you can do it. I mean, I'm not privy to everything that goes on behind closed doors in tennis or much of anything that goes, goes on behind closed doors (laughs) in tennis. But I mean, the stuff that the Australian Open owns, they can analyze the stuff that the USTA owns. It can analyze the stuff that Basel owns. It can analyze, but there's no sharing going on. So you can you can analyze a lot from just Australian Open matches or or just U.S. Open matches, but you're you're limited in a way that is really foreign to what other sports have gotten accustomed to. So that that's very limiting. And the other factor is just that you know, tactics are hard. Um, <laughs> yeah. A lot of the a, a lot of the stuff that you read about changing in in baseball or basketball is it's groundbreaking but it's not necessarily complicated like so much of baseball has changed because players decided to try to change the launch angle and that's one thing like i'm sure it's very hard i know i mean hitting a baseball is impossible and changing the launch angle with which you hit a baseball is even another level of impossible but it's just a one-dimensional thing to say i'm going to change my launch angle it's like a tennis player saying i'm going to try to hit with more topspin, which players have been doing for decades so like your example of, of certain point patterns, or if I go cross court twice and then go up the line, like, how often does that even happen? Like, even if we, even if we accepted the fact that there was something to be gained from that, if we accepted the fact that that all of those were identical, which they're not, there aren't that many of them. I mean, that's one of the messages that Craig O'Shaughnessy keeps sending out in the world with every other tweet he tweets is like, every point is like four shots long or three shots long so i mean if you're talking tactics you're talking about bang bang end of point it's it's not this complex thing it's not it's not something that's really amenable to increasingly complex analytics it's just which direction should you serve be more aggressive or be less aggressive and 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 that's it so I mean, I'm sure that we will discover ways to use more more uh, granular data and hopefully get our hands on more of the tracking data, but I don't think it's really clear how we're going to be able to take advantage of that because the tactics are so necessarily crude, and I don't think I, I just remember, there, there I probably told this story on my podcast, but I was at a challenger, I think in 2014. And I overheard Tim Smichek's coach talking to another coach about some tactic they were developing. And it was, it was like the sort of thing that, that you said, only more complicated. It was like, look, well, if, if you're on, if you're at 1530 and you get a serve to your backhand and you go cross court and the other guy comes back this way. And I'm thinking like, that happens three times all season. <laughs> yeah. why, why are you wasting Tim brain power on this? I mean, how how many scenarios like that do you have to have to build a game plan
0: if you're being that detailed? It's just
1: tennis doesn't work that
0: way. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. It's great. You can say, I'm going to go cross, cross down the line, but then your opponent goes down the line on shot number two. And you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm not doing that pattern because now I have to hit a backhand. And it's so fascinating to hear you uh you know talk about the fact that yeah as as great as it is to have these analytics prepared the there's an improvisational aspect of tennis that kind of makes you throw all of those numbers out the window. If your opponents land in his first serve each and every match, it doesn't matter what you are each and every point, it doesn't matter what you're trying to do on your return games. If, you know, you're only dinking your return over and he's getting plus one balls to slam away or you're playing John Isner, then it doesn't really matter. Again, you, you can throw all of that stuff out the window. So, yeah, that is, that is very fascinating. Uh, it's in such an interesting line of thought because there really are— Some basic numbers in tennis, right? The first serve percentage. You want to make as many of your first serves as you can because there's always a distinguishable difference, I would say, for 99% of players between their success rate on the first serves, their success rate on the second serve. Are those really the most reliable statistics? When you look at, you know, again, the most indicative stats for performance, is it really just as simple as, you know, first serve percentage, first serve win percentage? I I know hold percentage and, uh, you know, percent of return points won, those are things offered on Tennis Abstract that I particularly enjoy. But for you, what are the most indicative and most reliable statistics one can turn to in tennis?
1: Well, that's a, that's a big question. I don't know yeah. if I have an answer for that, but it, 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 I, I do want to take issue with one, one thing you said. Like, okay. I, I, I think you're right that, I mean, first serve in percentage is, it's super important. I mean, generally players who get high rates of first serves in and are more successful. And when you start looking at the stats, like first serve one and second serve one, then, I mean, if you're looking at points one, then, those should be correlating with wins because you're winning points. Like the more points you win, the more points you win. But the one interesting thing that I hope we get better data for is something we can talk about with with first serve in, which is that all this stuff is a trade-off. And whenever you talk about tactics, you're talking about trade-offs. So some players are comfortable, you know, making 80% of their first serve. Some players are comfortable making 55%. Serena made 55% and won in... Simona and matches fine um, but we don't yet have the data at least more at more than a couple of tournaments to, to look at what those trade-offs are and that's what I'm really curious about is if you know when you practice tennis you set up cones or little stacks of balls to know where to aim like what I wish I knew is if you set up those cones in a slightly different place that was you know two more inches inside from the corner or something Like what's the first serve percentage then? Like how much does it matter to hit the corner? I mean, it's better to hit the corner. I'd rather hit the corner than hit three inches inside the corner, but how much better is it? And if you could increase your first serve in percentage by 10%, if you went three inches inside the corner instead of aiming for one inch from the corner, then is it worth it? I mean, I don't know. It, it, It seems it's better to hit the corner, but how much better? And if we had the tracking data for every match that one or all players play, then we can start to answer those questions, and I mean, that's where that's where it really starts to matter. Because the, the, in in baseball or these other sports that have better analytics, it's it's just economics. I mean, it's economics without dollars. It's it's all about trade offs. I'm I'm putting my resources here instead of somewhere else because I'll get more wins for my salary dollars and more wins for my roster spots um, in exchange for that. And I wish we had more ability to think about tennis that way and say like i'm going to take this risk knowing that this is my likely payoff but because we're dealing with such crude numbers we can say like yeah players who get tons of first serves in like a sarah arani or someone getting 80% of your first service in probably means you're taking something off. And you can probably find a correlation there that says you're winning fewer service points or you're winning fewest, fewer first service points because on average, you're not hitting as hard. But that's a very crude approximation of the sort of thing I'm talking about. And ultimately, like despite the the improvisational aspect that you're talking about that complicates all this, ultimately we should we should be able to know all that stuff that you know aiming for the baseline has these risks and these rewards compared to aiming six inches inside the baseline and someday that's what i'd like to have in 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 the meantime we kind of wave our hands around like you would see me doing if if we were still connected on video um and and we just have to make these approximations we're just so we're at this stage where we kind of have to compare the stories that we think we're seeing like someone who's aiming for the lines more than they normally do or or hitting t-serves more than they normally do seeing if the numbers agree with that or not and and moving forward from there but we're really far from a point where we can sort of run a program and say why did Medvedev win today Mm -hmm. beyond you know he won more points or he won more service points like we're so far from being able to say what did he do tactically that worked because it's just such a complicated question that we're so many steps away from having an answer to that.
0: Yeah, well, I am confident if anyone's going to figure it out, it will be you, Jeff, and the team at Tennis Abstract. Um, and just, uh, again, my my last question for you, because I, there are so many other ways I want to go because it is such a broad discussion with tennis and analytics, and it really, as you have continued to allude to, there are so many unknowns within a tennis match. If it was easy to crack the code of, oh, you just have to hit your forehand 85 miles per hour, if you can do that seven times in a match, then you're going to win the match. Uh, obviously, everyone would do it, and there's no... You know, to get the cliche, there's no one way to skin a ten- tennis match, right? You can do it a bunch of different ways and find success. Uh, someone, it was Mike Cation referred it. This was the line he kept using all weekend long. I'd, uh, when we were at the National Indoors, he'd say, you know, forehands are like snowflakes. Everyone's got one, and they're all a little bit different. Um, and that that's not incorrect. But just, you know, my final question for you, Jeff, and I think one so many of us in the tennis world would like to know, What's the inspiration for you at Tennis Abstract? I know that can only, that's got to be so much work, and you know I know for you guys it's not a subscription based thing. Anyone could go on TennisAbstract.com for free and use it as an incredible resource with all of this information, all of this data available on both current and past players. And you know what's the impetus for you? What keeps Jeff Sackman motivated to keep rocking and rolling? And then ultimately, is there anything all of us listeners, all of us users of the website, can do uh, to make Life a little bit easier for you. Uh, well,
1: I wish I had a good answer to your second question. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Watch my kid—that uh, would help. <laughs> uh, probably not really pandemic friendly. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it, it all. It all started. It's almost ten years now, which is kind of disturbing. But I started it almost ten years ago, and uh, as I've I've talked about baseball a little bit, and I, I've been doing baseball analytics for. I mean, I've been a baseball fan all my life, but I've been doing baseball analytics for almost 20 years, and that's that's my day job. I run a, I well, I co-run a company that provides uh, baseball stats to Major League Baseball teams, and w- I've always been a tennis fan as well. I played a lot of tennis, and I'm certainly a better tennis player than a baseball player. And when I started looking for kind of an outlet from all the baseball obsession I was involved in, I started looking at at tennis stats, starting to ask myself some of these questions that we're talking about, and realizing it just. the the resources weren't out there and like you told your brothers that it was just like basketball reference well basketball reference is just like baseball reference (laughs) and baseball reference has been the touchstone for baseball fans for for 20 years it's truly I mean it's truly an incredible site and whenever I'm thinking about doing something new or uh or redesigning the site or or changing something up I, I always look to baseball reference and if 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 there's any guidance there that's what I follow it's just it's so good and so thorough and so usable um and I wanted that basically I mean so that that was the emphasis in the beginning is I mean I wanted to go on tennisreference.com and tennis reference didn't exist so I eventually built it
0: <laughs> and
1: as to what keeps it going I I'm I think that's mostly just inertia at this point you know, it's not inertia in the sense that it's no work and it just stays there because it definitely is a, a fair amount of work. But um, there are, are certainly times over the last 10 years that I've I've been more or less enthusiastic about keeping it going and doing the sort of endless round of bug fixes and adjusting to the latest stupid WTA site redesign <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. It, it, and there's lots of frustrations along the way, but ultimately like I I want to, have this resource and, and there's other, I mean, there's a lot more great sites out there now than there were when I started. And I think if if I had come along with the same mindset that I did 10 years ago today, then I wouldn't have built it because I mean, there's other great stuff out there and and even just some of the betting oriented sites, they're not designed to do the same thing, but they go most of the way. So you can answer a lot more questions with uh, some of those sites than you could 10 years ago. But, um, but that wasn't the case then because I've been, building it for so long here, here we still are. And there's always more questions to answer. And I always want to, you know, be able to use these filters when I'm watching a match or researching some question I'm interested in. So, I mean, that's really it. It's just like, I'm glad there are other people out there who enjoy it as well, but that's, I've really always just built the site for me and Sometimes that means I'm not terribly responsive to other people's suggestions because <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about it, then you know I, it's tough to motivate myself to sure. to to improve the site. but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's it.
0: It's the site that I want to have. so so I do. That's yeah. it. No, I again, it's thoroughly appreciated. i I open a website now and I go to type in uh, you know www dot and it just assumes I'm going to tennisabstract dot com for whatever that's worth. So, yeah, I mean, You've got hardcore ELO ratings, clay ELO ratings, grass ELO ratings, thousands of, of matches match charted. I suppose that is something we could have people do, right? If there's an army out there listening to this podcast that wants to watch a bunch of 1990s matches, chart them and throw them up on the website, I suppose maybe that'll be of assistance? Yeah, absolutely. And not just 1990s matches. I mean,
1: we do add about a 1,000 to 1,200 matches per year, but... If you think about how many matches there are, that's just scratching the surface. I think we've we've got a couple dozen from the Australian Open, but um, but even still, that leaves out early round matches for the very best players. So yeah, absolutely. I should have. I'm glad you reminded me of that. I should have said that from the outset. That if you do want to pitch in, that's the number one place to go. Um, is, is dig into the match charting project. It's. I will freely admit that the the learning curve is a little steep. It can be a little frustrating to learn to chart matches in at least in my methodology because we do track so many details but yeah. um once you once you get over that initial hump it's not that bad i mean and i and several other contributors are charting matches more or less live so it's the same experience as, as watching matches um like you normally do only with more typing involved and that's that's tremendously valuable and like you said you can do 90s matches too i've been doing a lot of 70s and 80s stuff um lately and that's Super interesting, and one other small thing. Like I, I should point out, since I think a lot of people don't know about this, is all the raw data. Maybe not all the raw data. A large percentage of the raw data that fuels Tennis Abstract, I've put on GitHub. So if you're comfortable with with uh, spreadsheets and you want to look at the raw data, then it's all there. There's a link to it on the the homepage. So you can check that out. And I'm I'm starting to post sort of help wanted issues in, at GitHub as well. And the one I've posted already is uh, the ITF no longer publishes birth dates for players. Mm -hmm. Um, They used to. And that means that as new players enter the system, I don't have their birth date. I don't don't have their age. And that's that's really valuable. I mean, I don't need to, you know, stock every single player with a, with a junior ranking, but it is nice to know, you know, the latest teenage sensation, exactly how old they are and where that puts them in various categories. So I, I do encourage people to, to pitch in and track down some of those birth dates. They're out there online, but it's pretty low on my list of priorities to <laughs> look up the birth date for the current WTA number 1232. So if you want to do that, then that's very welcome. A few people have been pitching in on that lately. And that's very much appreciated. So there are a few things you can do. Um, And I guess the last thing I'll say is, and I, one of the great things about baseball that I'm just now starting to see with tennis is for 20 years, there's been this amazing community of people doing analytical research. And one of the secondary motivations of starting this site was to make it a little more possible for people to do the kind of work that they've been doing in baseball for a long time and and there are some people out there who are doing good stuff with and without tennis abstract i mean hidden game of tennis is, is is a cool site which does some interesting work and there's academics like stephanie kowalczyk at stats on the t who who does stuff that's interesting and very technical um and whether you're you know whether you want to whip out your r skills or you want to you know Use the statistics that you learned in your PhD program, or you just want to do some division and count up win streaks and stuff like that. Like, there's so many interesting analytical tennis questions that have not been answered. So, I hope that more people start doing that. Like, I I would like to bring back like a early two thousands area era blogosphere analytics feel to the, the tennis world. Just have more voices pitching in with these questions and 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 answering these questions these analytical questions. And I mean, I know tennis abstract makes that more possible than it used to. I just hope that that kind of community continues to, to grow. And we all, we all learn from that. There's only so many studies I can run. There's only so many podcasts we can have these discussions on. So the more people are involved in working on these issues, the the better and the smarter we'll all be in the end.
0: Yeah, no. And again, sincerely, I'm done blowing smoke up your ass, but I swear, like I, I truly, I I must use tennis abstract at least 15 times a day. It's just, it does make life that much easier when you're looking up win streaks or, Hey, how many quarterfinals has, uh, I think it was last night. uh, Again, I don't remember what the purpose was, but I was like, how many quarterfinals has Alex Diemenauer made in his career? And I was like, Oh, the answer is 15 at the ATP level. Like I can just go to, you know, surface hard courts and I can, or, you know, I can go to round and click quarterfinals and I can go to level and I can click ATP level. And you know, that sort of resource does make it uh, more feasible uh, for so many who want to break into tennis media, but as you mentioned, it makes us a more intelligent tennis media as well, which I think uh, is something that always benefits the product, and particularly given the way tennis Twitter sometimes is, uh, certainly makes for a better discussion. And, you know, speaking of which, I have kept you far over the lengths I promised when we started this discussion. So, Jeff, uh, I just want to say again, thank you so much for all you do uh, for all of us in tennis media. Please know, uh, again, that you. You have a spot open on this podcast for you always. In fact, I'm going to reserve the right to bring you back because I could have done 20 minutes on the decline of Svitolina's first serve percentage, but we haven't. You know, I'll I'll save that for next time. Uh, Just one last thing I want to ask for our listeners again. Where can they listen to the podcast? What can they expect from you moving forward?
1: Yeah, everything's linked to TennisAbstract.com. I've been doing this daily podcast, Expected Points, which is three or four minutes a day. I'm going to keep doing that daily, at least for the time being. I'm also um, working on a a daily baseball podcast that'll be a similar format starting when we get closer to opening day. Uh, I've got the long form podcast with various guests. I've actually got two fantastic guests coming up um, next week. So um, you can find that podcast at TennisAbstract.com match charting project if you want to contribute check that out but I mean it's all from it's all at tennisabstract.com or I, I tweet it all out at, at, at tennisabstract on on Twitter so as long as you remember those two words one of which is tennis then you're in pretty good shape just um I, I've noticed lately people seem increasingly unwilling to click links and explore things and find things <laughs> out themselves don't be that guy like everybody just needs to you know research their own stuff look for cool stuff find new things on the internet and a lot of them uh, a, a lot of cool things are at Tennis Abstract that I think a lot of people don't discover. It sounds like you, Alex, you've done a great job finding all the uh, all, all the tools that are there. But I think the the average person using the site doesn't realize how many things you can click on. And some of that's a UI failure on my part, but some of it's just a lack of curiosity. And I hope that more people overcome that. So, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 all there. There's plenty to plenty to keep you busy, uh, especially when there'll be less tennis to watch next week. So. Lots of stuff there to check out.
0: No, absolutely. I guess I'm going to throw in a bonus. Was the 2012 R.A. Dickey Cy Young run the most? Uh, I suppose sporadic. Was it the most uh, unexpected Cy Young? Still the statistical aberration in baseball history.
1: It's it's got to be up there. I'm I'm a little rusty on some of my my baseball historical context yeah. stuff. I mean, I I think that. It, it, One of the great things about about baseball, since you do have 150 years of of fairly detailed stats going back that whole way, like if you want to look for aberrations, you will always find aberrations. Um, But I don't I don't know how how that one would stack up
0: with the weirdest stuff you could find in the 19th century. Yeah, no, very, very true. Yeah, somewhere uh, Phil Necro is like, no, I won 45 games in a season and I only pitched 12 times. And it's like, well, that doesn't make (laughs) sense. Uh, So that's out there somewhere as well. But again, we'll save that for next time. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to do this again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Alex. Yep. Take care. Bye. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman. Hoping to get Jeff back on the show sometime soon. There really are so few people who see the game through the analytical lens that he does. So again, a big thank you for to him for taking the time to chat. Sincerely, if you are not using Tennis Abstract, if you're not following Jeff's blog post, you're missing out on a fantastic resource offered for all of us tennis fans. So be sure to go check it out. And again, hopefully we'll get him back on the show sometime soon. Of course. Of course, if you have missed any of the action in Australia, anything else going on in the tennis world, be sure to catch up on it all by going to our website, crackrackets.com. You need those more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly? I'm at GreatShot Pod. Shout out as always to the super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel westoff for the of an any job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to midwestsports.com. Use that promo code CR15. But with that in mind, for my wonderful guest Jeff Sackman, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. and you know what we say. That's the break. We will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.